When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you then. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis, your temporary host sitting in for Tracy V. Wilson, who'll be back in four days. But today, it's December 13th and Ibn Battuta completed the account of his world travels on this day in 1355. The man born Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta became one of the most accomplished travelers of history. He was born in Tangier on February 25, 1304. Now, Tangier is in what's today known as Morocco, but the city's history may go back as far as the Phoenicians in the 10th century BCE. When Ibn Battuta was born, Morocco was ruled by the Marinids, one of several Berber dynasties from medieval times. Batuta left Tangier when he was 20 years old, setting out on the Hajj to Mecca. He wrote, I left Tangiers, my birthplace, on Thursday the 2nd of Rajab, 725. That's 725 in the Hijri Islamic calendar. With the intention of going on pilgrimage to Mecca, I set out alone, having neither fellow traveler in whose companionship I might find cheer, nor caravan whose part I might join. But swayed by an overmastering impulse within me, and a desire long cherished in my bosom to visit these illustrious sanctuaries, So I braced my resolution to quit my dear ones, female and male, and forsook my home as birds forsake their nests. My parents being yet in the bonds of life, it weighed sorely upon me to part from them, and both they and I were afflicted with sorrow at this separation. I was then only twenty. Ibn Battuta traveled east from the Maghreb along the southern Mediterranean coast through Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, and Alexandria. Sometimes he joined caravans for safety in numbers, Sometimes he met people along the way. 
He married a woman in Sfax, for instance, in what is now Tunisia. He spent Ramadan in Damascus, then went on to Medina and finally completed his Hajj in Mecca. But after performing his pilgrimage, he just decided to keep traveling. He could have returned home, but instead headed to what's now Iraq, Iran, Somalia, the eastern coast of Africa, Anatolia, Crimea, India, Pakistan, Indonesia. He did over his lifetime return to Mecca for several Hajj pilgrimages. But on his travels, he met with many rulers, emperors, sheikhs, and viziers. He served for a while as a local judge in the islands known as the Maldives, which had then recently converted to Islam. While there, he married into the royal family. In fact, Ibn Battuta had a number of marriages over the years and in multiple countries. He made his way to China under Mongol rule. While there, he saw paper money and was very, very impressed. Now, by the time Batuta wrapped up his life of travel, he'd have visited 44 different countries, if you're judging by today's boundaries. He hit up Central Asia and South Asia, China, and parts of Southern Africa and Eastern Europe. He covered the majority of the Islamic world, also known as Dar al-Islam. Ibn Battuta traveled 75,000 miles, or 121,000 kilometers. He spent 29 years traveling. He was a geographer, a botanist, a legal scholar, a qadi or judge. And he finally did make his way back to Tangier in 1349. Both of his parents had passed away by then, and upon learning that news, Batuta set out to explore the Sahara. He went to Ulata in Timbuktu in the Mali Empire, and finally returned to Morocco in 1354. Now, throughout his travels, he didn't keep a diary, he didn't keep a journal. And it was only in 1354 that he dictated his travels to a man named Ibn Juzay. There were no sources that Ibn Juzay cited, and some passages that he wrote were the same as other sources— there was some conflicting information, and again, all of this travel was remembered by Ibn Battuta. But it was eventually published as Tufat al-Anzar fi garaib al-Amsar wa ajaib al-Asfar, or A Gift to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Traveling. Now, that title can be a bit much, but Battuta's travelogue is generally just referred to as the Rihla, or The Journey, and it was published in 1355. After that, the details of Batuta's life become a little less certain. He was appointed a judge in Morocco and eventually died in either 1368 or 1369. Now, Batuta was little known outside the Islamic world until the 18th century when his works began to be translated. He's often been compared to other world travelers like Marco Polo, for instance. For more about Ibn Batuta, give a listen to the August 2, 2017 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's called Ibn Batuta, The Traveler of Islam. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. Please tune in tomorrow for the anniversary of an ambitious expedition finally reaching its goal. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Hello, hello again. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, where we examine the past from the present. The day was December 13, 1903. Ella Josephine Baker was born in Norfolk, Virginia. Baker is known for her organizing work in the fight for Black civil rights and human rights. Baker grew up in Littleton, a small rural town in North Carolina. She was the second of three children, born to Blake Baker, a ferryboat waiter, and Georgiana Baker, a teacher. Her family and upbringing instilled in her a sense of communal responsibility, historical awareness, pride, and rebellion. There were no secondary schools in Littleton, so her parents sent her to Raleigh to attend Shaw Boarding School. After high school, she enrolled at Shaw University in Raleigh, where she majored in sociology. During her time at Shaw, she already had social justice inclinations, speaking up against restrictive school rules. In 1927, she graduated from Shaw University as valedictorian of her class and moved to New York City. There, she got jobs as a server and factory worker, and her social and political consciousness grew as she witnessed poverty and suffering in Harlem and the effects of the Great Depression descended on the city. She worked as a correspondent for Black newspapers, and she helped found the Young Negroes Cooperative League, which helped people gain economic power by buying collectively. She became the organization's first national director in 1931. Throughout the 1930s, she was involved with many other organizations, like the Workers' Education Project, part of the Works Progress Administration, which hired her to teach consumer and labor education. She was also involved with the Women's Day Workers and Industrial League, the Harlem Housewives Cooperative, and the Harlem Young Women's Christian Association and she wrote about economic oppression. In 1935, she and Marvell Cook co-authored an expose on the exploitation of Black domestic workers. 
By the early 1940s, Baker had become an assistant field secretary and later national field secretary for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP. She traveled around the South U.S., organizing NAACP branches and starting membership drives. Though she worked with the NAACP for a while, she resigned from her post as director of branches in 1946. She was disillusioned with the organization because it was so bureaucratic and because it relied so heavily on legal approaches to fight discrimination. Baker supported more control from the branches rather than the existing top-down approach. Around this time, she married Thomas Roberts and took on the responsibility of raising her niece, Jacqueline. But she's still associated with the NAACP as president of the New York branch and was an advisor to the organization's youth council. When activists in the South were preparing for the Montgomery bus boycott, Baker, along with A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, and Stanley Levison, founded a group called In Friendship. In Friendship supported desegregation in the South and provided financial assistance to the boycotts. In the wake of the successful boycotts, civil rights leaders formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC. Baker emerged as a leader whose organizing was integral to its projects, and she became a director in the SCLC. Though she coordinated the organization's voter rights campaign and ran the office, she rejected its hierarchical, charismatic leadership centered around Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in favor of group-centered leadership. Also, women in the organization were often relegated to administrative roles. Baker resigned from the SCLC in 1960. She turned her attention to the sit-ins students were initiating in the South, and she helped organize the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which led more sit-ins, voter registration drives, and other civil rights initiatives. Baker helped organize the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, a grassroots political organization that challenged the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party. And she joined the Southern Conference Educational Fund, an interracial organization that advocated for white support of racial justice. Throughout the rest of her life, she remained committed to championing civil and human rights, working with groups like the Puerto Rican Solidarity Committee and the African National Congress. Baker died in New York on her 83rd birthday. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you're hungry for more history, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. And you can email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for going on this trip through history with us. We'll see you again tomorrow with another episode. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Yes. (laughs)
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that proves there's more than one way to make history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're remembering the day when one of the best-trained commanders of the American Revolution was taken prisoner while still in his pajamas. The day was December 13th, 1776. Continental Army General Charles Lee surrendered to British forces after being caught off guard at a tavern in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Lee had stayed at Widow White's tavern the previous night, but historians still aren't sure why. The several thousand American soldiers under his command were encamped north in a town now known as Bernardsville, but Lee, their commanding officer, had chosen to spend the night three miles away, inside a cozy tavern. Some people think he just wanted to get away from his troops and get a good night's sleep. Others have suggested that Lee had gone to see the house of an acquaintance because he wanted to copy the design for his own house in Virginia, and when it got late, he just stayed the night at the nearest tavern. However, the prevailing theory is that Lee ditched his army in search of, let's say, female companionship. No matter which explanation you go with, Charles Lee doesn't come off as a responsible or reliable commander, which was a shame because, as George Washington noted, Lee was also, quote, the first officer in military knowledge and experience in the whole army. Lee, who was second in command under Washington, had attended military school in England as a child. When he graduated, he took a commission in the British Army and traveled to North America to fight in the Seven Years' War. During that time, Lee married a Mohawk woman and was given the name Boiling Water in recognition of his short temper. 
least settled in the American colonies in 1773, and when the Revolutionary War began, he volunteered his service in the Continental Army. His resume made him a strong candidate for commander-in-chief, but he was ultimately passed over, with the job going to George Washington instead. Lee was insulted and carried a grudge from then on. That brings us to December 1776, an especially dark time for the Continental Army. Its forts along the Hudson River had fallen to the British a few weeks earlier. This forced the Continental Army to retreat from New York in two directions. General George Washington took 3,000 soldiers west across the northern part of New Jersey, hoping to cross the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, General Charles Lee took his wing of the army to White Plains, just above New York City. His mission was to hold off the advance of the British Army in the event they tried to head north. By early December, Washington and the main body of the U.S. Army had reached the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River. The British Army, under the command of Sir William Howe, had chosen to follow Washington and was currently making its way across New Jersey to intercept him. Washington was determined to make a final stand, knowing that if they couldn't hold the line, the American Revolution would be snuffed out before the end of the year. Washington wrote numerous letters to Lee, urging him to bring his troops from New York and join the rest of the army on the Delaware River. However, Lee was still angry over having to serve under someone with less experience. He dodged Washington's requests with a string of excuses. The delay prompted the following response from Washington, quote, I have so frequently mentioned our situation and the necessity of your aid that it is painful to me to add a word upon the subject. Let me once more request and entreat you to march immediately. Finally, on December 10th, Lee got moving, though he pledged to stop short of crossing the Delaware. He commanded his troops to march to Morristown, New Jersey, and two days later, they pushed southwest to present-day Bernardsville. That evening, on December 12th, General Lee decided to find accommodations more suited to a man of his station. He rode three miles to Basking Ridge and rented a room at a two-story tavern nicknamed Widow White's. Lee was accompanied by just over a dozen troops, while the rest remained back at camp. They spent a lovely evening there in the company of strangers, but the next morning, it turned out to be a far less pleasant experience. A group of British dragoons, or soldiers on horseback, had learned of Lee's location from local residents who remained loyal to the British crown. The dragoons were commanded by 22-year-old officer Bannister Tarleton, by 10 a.m., he and his men had reached the woods surrounding the tavern and were preparing to make their attack. Meanwhile, Lee was still inside, unaware of the danger he was in. His army had already started marching out of Bernardsville, but Lee chose to hang back so he could finish his breakfast and dictate a derogatory letter about George Washington to fellow General Horatio Gates. He was in the midst of these pressing matters when Tarleton and his dragoons stormed out of the woods and took Lee's guards by surprise. 
they fired through every door and window in the tavern for several minutes. Then, Tarleton delivered an ultimatum to whoever was left standing. He said that if General Lee did not surrender in five minutes, he would set fire to the house and kill everyone inside. Lee watched the scene unfold from his upstairs window, and within a few minutes, he surrendered. A few of the general's aides managed to escape, but Lee was taken prisoner and eventually jailed in New York City. An American officer named James Wilkinson described the embarrassing scene, writing, quote, A general shout ensued, the trumpet sounded the assembly, and the unfortunate Lee, mounted on my horse, which stood ready at the door, was hurried off in triumph, bareheaded, in his slippers and blanket coat, his collar open, and his shirt very much soiled from several days' use. The bright side of Lee's capture was that it silenced George Washington's most vocal critic. With Lee out of the picture, Washington was able to win support for his proposed sneak attack, and with the combined might of Lee's soldiers, he managed to pull it off. Twelve days after Lee was taken prisoner, Washington and his army made their historic Christmas crossing of the Delaware River. Over the next ten days, they won a series of crucial battles that ultimately turned the tide of the Revolutionary War, which leads you to wonder how the world might be different if Charles Lee hadn't lied down on the job and gotten himself captured. As for what actually happened, Lee spent the next 16 months in British custody. He made sure his stay wasn't too uncomfortable, though, by turning traitor and advising William Howe on the best strategy for invading Philadelphia. His treason wasn't discovered until 1857, nearly 80 years after his death. Because no one knew what he had done at the time, Lee was eventually reclaimed by the Continental Army as part of a prisoner swap in May of 1778. He briefly returned to his post, but was court-martialed for cowardice by July. He wrote to Congress to try and get the court-martial overturned, but his letter was so poorly received that he was officially dismissed from the army instead. By that point, Lee had contracted a chronic cough, along with other symptoms indicative of tuberculosis. His health continued to decline, and on October 2, 1782, he was stricken with fever and died alone in a tavern at the age of 50. In his will, Lee requested that he not be buried in a churchyard or within a mile of any religious meeting house. As he explained, quote, Since I have resided in this country, I have kept so much bad company when living that I do not choose to continue it when dead. In the end, Lee's wishes were ignored, and he was buried in an unmarked grave in the Christ Church Cemetery in Philadelphia. He was disgraced and virtually friendless by the time of his death, but George Washington still came to his funeral. It's unclear whether that gesture would have pleased Lee or enraged him, but I imagine Washington would have done it either way. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. 
If you have a moment and you're so inclined, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. You can also send any comments or suggestions to thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.